Welcome back to The Imposter's Way, the place where I keep a beginner's mind and you, hopefully, can keep on learning from the things I've picked up along the way. The aim of The Imposter's Way is to explore interesting ideas from first principles, and that is taking the time to ask naive questions in order to gain a true understanding instead of a superficial familiarity with a topic. So join me in staying curious, in staying independently minded and attempting to find balanced opinions in a world of polarization and simplification. It is a sunny Sunday and do not ask me why, but I'm currently trying to educate myself on central banks and car marks. The two are not the same, but I really struggle with some concepts in both of them. So without explicitly comparing the two, I was still struck by a common mental model. And I do not have a name for that model, uh, for that theory or whatever. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody else does and wrote about that already. I'm unaware of any term for it, so I'll just, I'll just give it the working title of a functional actor or a stateful actor. And I'll explain what I mean by that today. If you are not a fan of abstract things normally, I would say this qualifies. So I'll try to make this specific abstract thing as tangible as possible without dropping the theory completely. And that is a challenge for me uh, to find that line between pure abstraction and pure storytelling. That's a balance I, I aim to find the more I publish. For this particular episode, it might be good to check out the written version at theimpostorsway.com. If you find yourself lost or you want to dig deeper, that would honor me, but you know, just telling you that it's out there and for this a bit more theoretical piece, uh, it might be helpful. The audio version here, I'll, I'll just you know be able to zoom out and also add some some color here and there if I find it's a bit too abstract. With that, let's let's get into it. The base feeling or question I had is um, this image of are you a cog in the system uh, when, when dealing with ESB uh, and Fed stuff, so central banks and 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 reading marks. So. Let's start from there. A cog is a part of a machine and per definition is a subordinate but integral part. That's the definition. A cog is a stateless actor in the system. So it fulfills a role in the system, but it has no understanding of the system as a whole and does not learn from the past. It does not keep state is what computer scientists call this way of working. So if you imagine a cog in a mechanical system, that cog doesn't have any knowledge about the whole system and does not change its way of working the 50th, the 100th time the cog turns, right? And this stands in contrast to a stateful actor who learns from the past. Before tying this together with inflation and socialism and whatever, I'll have to expand a bit more on this stateless versus stateful actor. So let's let's start with the first uh, stateless actor is also the functional actor that it, these are synonymous. So functional meaning it 
just serves a function doesn't have any state that it stores. A functional actor has the ability to perform work. Work can be defined as taking a certain set of inputs and transforming those to generate a certain set of outputs. Right? So this is where the theory comes in. The actor itself does not change in the process of doing that work. That is, if you envision the cog in the machine. But let's take an example. I personally spent some months working at a conveyor belt in the past. My job was to monitor little packets of chocolate coming from the left of me. And each package was a small translucent plastic bag which was sealed on the top. I was then to add a little red ribbon around the top of every second plastic packaging for decorative purposes. So I'll just describe the work to you. My left hand was to grab the next package on the conveyor belt. My right hand to grab a fresh ribbon from a box below the conveyor belt. That was kind of between my legs almost. And then attach the ribbon before placing the package back onto the moving belt. And the next person sitting like 50 centimeters to the right of me, two feet, was doing the exact same thing, the exact same work for the other half of the packages that I let drive by without ribbon. So my left hand was picking out every second chocolate package, adding a ribbon, placing the package back onto the conveyor belt. And the person to the right would do the same thing for the odd numbers if I would pick the even numbers right, of packages. That is a functional or stateless actor in, in the wild. So let's define the stateful actor here. A stateful actor is different, obviously. Uh, it also has the ability to perform work, though. Work again is defined as taking inputs and producing outputs. The difference to the functional actor is that the state full actor stores resources or information from the past, so from past work. This actor performs work with side effects, is what you could also say. So he can use the information and resources of past work to apply to current work. And that leads the state full actor to produce unpredictable outputs and a group of stateful actors to produce very different results from each other. So let's explain that with an example too. I personally spent some months working in a restaurant in the past. My job included to wipe the tables when closing down at night. I was to take a bucket of warm water, so I'm again describing the part of my job here, of my work. I was to take a bucket of warm water and a small block of curd soap. Each of the approximately 20 tables had to be scrubbed with a lot of water and some curd soap. So this creates kind of a foamy mix and that has to be then wiped off with a clean sponge. And the last step for each table is uh, you know, to achieve a waxy finish on the, on the wooden surface without any stains is to dry the surface with a tablecloth. So immediately in the description of the work here, we can observe that I've moved up in the world at, by this point. D 
the complexity of the task I've been given has exploded if you compare it to the ribbon decorating on plastic packages. The amount of inputs has increased. So now I'm working with several tools, namely a bucket, a block of soap, two sponges and a tablecloth. And the sequence I use these tools in matters. And the way I use them matters and the speed I work at is also kind of up to me. So we assume these kind of degrees of freedom as the default. So only working in highly controlled environments like the conveyor belt environment helped me to appreciate these differences between kinds of work. And it took me way longer to pick up the skill of adequate table cleaning that I, that I did chocolate package ribboning significantly longer actually. If not careful, soap water tends to run down the sides of the table, which can leave sticky curd soap residue, which in turn sticks to clients' pants when they get up the next day when they, when they come to the restaurant. You have this kind of sticky residue on the side, and when people get up, they tend to you know, um, hit the side of the table with, with their legs, uh, which would make like whitish... Uh, leave whitish stains on pants, which is uh, like a bad optic for, for clients, uh, so they would get angry. So, you know, there's things you can do wrong here. So I had to learn to be thorough. And thorough technique took me many minutes longer, unpaid minutes longer, by the way. So I had to learn how to be thorough and speedy. As you can imagine, it took me like I did it wrong, I learned, I got told like, hey, don't leave the residue there. Next next time I did it, it took me three minutes longer per table, whatever, two minutes. And if you multiply that by 20 tables, uh, you're working longer. Uh, you're working 40 minutes longer without pay. So I had to learn to be thorough and speedy, right? The learning step here is a critical one. The higher the complexity of a task, the higher the degrees of freedom, the more there is to learn. This requires doing things in an inefficient way and collecting information, storing and applying that information the next time one performs that task. That is what learning is. And that is what keeping state is and what a stateful actor does. He is not a cog in a machine and he still might have constraints, limited time, limited tools, but he has also the freedom to do tasks badly and improve. So that is the state full actor, right? And I explicitly a, chose an example here from my own experience, but also an example that is still rather simplistic, right? That is not the most complicated job to do. Your job, your work is probably more complex than that, than cleaning tables. Yet there's already a lot in there comparatively to the conveyor belt example. So why mental models maybe? Why am I abstracting this away from the example? Keeping state is something that makes us human is what I believe. And being the last step of a chain of automation, so a biological arm that fulfills robotic tasks, like attaching a ribbon, is something I wish on nobody. 
I mean, I wish it maybe on everybody, but only for a very limited amount of time just to experience it once. Uh, but to nobody. Um, and there is people that obviously do this every day for years. The intent of mental models in general is to offer abstractions that apply similarly in different situations. I mean, you could also call them theories. But now that we've covered the theoretical way of functional and stateful actors, so the, the theories are there, we have the model now in our head and we illustrated it with one, with one example each. Now the idea is to extend it and to use it to understand other types of situations uh, with the same framework. And where I got to thinking through this is maybe a bit of a controversial hypothesis that I can now state because we have clarified the words that I use in it beforehand. So I'll postulate that being a stateful actor instead of a functional actor is our natural way of being. We find this in different parts of life and any system that denies its members the ability to keep state implicitly is against property rights and individual initiative. So as a rule, we want to, as individuals, we want to maintain state in most instances, right, on the individual level. And the only two examples that prove the rule to me is indebtedness or traumatic experiences, traumatic learning. Those might be the exceptions, and I can get to those at the end. Right, so that's the hypothesis. It is that stateful actor is the role we want to play in the world. Being forced to be a functional actor is something that goes against our nature and it goes indirectly or directly against individual initiative, which is easier to argue for, and property rights, which is a bit harder to argue for. And I'll get to that now. But to get to that general point, let me apply the stateful actor to two further aspects of work. And we've already discovered that storing information about the past helps the stateful actor to learn and adjust the way he does work in the future. And the same can be said for storing resources and for storing value. So I'll, I'll go through those now. That is building up the mental model in these other dimensions. So we start with storing resources. When working, the individual can learn and adjust to perform a task better than last time. So learning is storing information derived from past experiences. In that same vein, we can keep physical resources to improve our ability to perform tasks in the future. As an example here, uh, let's take a carpenter that has a client who wants a chair, a wooden chair. And building that chair requires a specialized carving tool that the carpenter does not yet have. So he acquires that tool, he buys that tool, learns how to use it, builds and delivers the chair. And he keeps the new carving tool in his workshop and his skill to use it, even if the client has his chair and has paid and has gone away. The carpenter is here storing the state from past work. He can deploy the resources stored right, in his workshop, in this case, for his future endeavors. Which is the second dimension I wanted to apply this to, to illustrate the point of this storing state 
what qualities of states or what other dimensions of state do we have? So the third one I want to talk about today, and I bet there is more, is storing value. The most obvious, but I think least understood way of storing state is the ability to store past value generation. So to continue to paint the picture using our carpenter, let's say the carpenter works on several projects. Um, so in addition to his special chair that we just talked to, and new clients keep coming in and he has trouble serving them all because he can only work on one project at a time. The payments he gets for the projects he stores in his bank account. And after evaluating the market and learning from his experience, he then hires two aides who help him with the workload and make the carpenter business able to serve more clients. They can now work on two to three projects at a time and help each other out. And overall, the workshop becomes more efficient and he can teach these aides to become better at their job. And that drives the value of this whole enterprise up. So storing the fruits of one's labor is what allows for adaption in the ways we carry out our tasks in the future. Just like having extra tools in one's workshop that we can use for the next project, money can be stored and used to improve future work. Now that we've established in which dimensions uh, non-functional actors, so state full actors want to store state, we can move on to my a bit more, um, well, specific <laughs> observations about socialism and inflation and central banks. But before that, let's quickly summarize where we stand. A functional actor is a pure cog in a machine. The differences between a functional actor and a state full actor uh, are these three that we pointed out, but let's uh, formalize them in a short condensed version. So first, the stateful actor accumulates specialized knowledge, which is storing information of past tasks completed. And second, he also accumulates tools and materials, which is storing resources, physical resources of completed tasks. And thirdly, he accumulates wealth, which is storing value created from past tasks, right? completed work. To see the importance of those three elements, is help, it's helpful to consider what taking them away would mean. So hindering these types of accumulations is forcing actors to become more functional. And I think just quickly to zoom out here, obviously, <laughs> well, obviously, I should clarify, that an actor is not either functional or stateful, right? There's, there's obviously a continuum. Working on a conveyor belt still requires some learning. It still requires having some information in your head on how to do things. It's just not very challenging. While cleaning the tables requires a lot more, while being a carpenter requires a lot more. So there is uh, levels to this. But it's always great to invert. So. If you want to prove why this accumulation of information, of tools and of wealth is important to the individual, let's reverse it, let's invert it and see what losing it would mean or being hindered to accumulate it. So losing 
information losing is losing learning right and in the biological way there would be dementia um, and otherwise i can't really take information away from you except for hitting you in the head until your brain doesn't work anymore so maybe overwriting it but you know there were some drug experiments trying to clean people's brains uh, it's very crude and uh, not really possible easily so the natural way would be dementia that is losing learning a pretty horrible experience and then the other way is not allowing an actor to learn so not to gather information from past work and use that knowledge to improve future work so not giving the individual the chance to improve that is the conveyable experience there was literally no way for me to become better at my job i did it for i don't know an hour and i was a bit clumsy with my hands but then i got the hang of it of this ribbon attaching and then i did the exact same task for uh, days i mean they actually rotate you from job to job because you get so bored so you come in the next day you get they, they might put you on another station right because the work is so empty uh, it doesn't allow for any uh, improvements and that's the natural drive for humans or at least in my experience and not allowing me to to learn and to gather information and to do things better is really a shitty move <laughs> so that is about information what what does it mean to lose physical resources the natural way of losing physical resources is erosion or decay. Uh, your tools, your your the wood you store in your workshop, you know, might become moldy, or the tools might uh, rust, and uh, you have to maintain them, or you might have to throw them out and replace them. That is the natural way of losing physical resources. Also, kind of sucks. Can't change much about it. Obviously, there's um, other ways here it's easier than information so for example i can take your tools away from you and not allowing an actor to keep the tools and materials to use for future work is the weakening of property rights so if you own wood um, and tools and i take that away from you then obviously you didn't have a lot of rights to have those tools um, if it's violent then there is no rule of law um, and if it is let's say government-based theft or whatever you want to call it, then that is uh, you know, a, a rule of law that doesn't have strong property rights included in it. Let's say, for example, if it's for the greater good and we have a severe wood shortage, uh, I am able to come in and take the wood away from you that you needed for your future work or your tools, right? And and you know then your business business is crushed but uh, that's legal in your jurisdiction that is losing physical resources there's the natural way of erosion and decay what the world just does <laughs> and then there is what human systems do on top of it also kind of sucky and the third dimension that we looked at was wealth so a very misunderstood worth word i think but uh, losing wealth is is uh well it can be also stolen i guess um there's actually no organic decay function on wealth what does that mean 
if you have uh you know if you have gold or if you have money somewhere it's not that um there is the wind comes by and it rusts or it flies away so naturally wealth should actually be the most stable here because it doesn't it's a mental model itself it is a um, fiction a useful fiction we use as humans which is incredible that we found a system where we believe in and therefore money exists and therefore value exists in something that is completely arbitrary <laughs> you know physical resources like wood is a real thing and it can also decay and mold but it's also real and uh, wealth and money for that matter is not we make it real uh, so there is no natural decay process of it what we do is we add a um, an artificial decay process to it which is uh, inflation uh, by central banks um, or taxation if you want to uh, if you want to include taxation so not allowing an actor to keep earned money to deploy for future project is something we could call financial repression now those are just first principle observations as an individual we do not want to experience dementia erosion nor do we want to experience inflation if we have a choice we want to be able to learn from the past we want to be able to keep tools and materials from the past and we also want to keep money so value that we've provided in the past money we've earned for future endeavors as individuals we want to maintain state all kinds of state we have and we've covered three types here information physical resources and wealth and if you were short-sighted and wanted to get angry at me you could now say well aren't you postulating that any kind of taxation is uh, bad aren't you postulating that we we shouldn't take wood away if there is a severe wood shortage and people are dying and uh, i hope uh, <laughs> i hope you're not that person but well actually if you are go go right ahead obviously i'm not postulating that just by observing the individual preferences obviously it's interesting to see where that leads but let's um let's maybe go there by talking about something that 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 comes up in, in Marx's work over and over again but i guess generally more socialist writing and uh, that is the concept of the working class so how what does that have to do with any of the things we've talked about the mental model of the working class which as as well is a mental model um, does not fit together with any of these observations that that I've kind of laid out. The inherently generalizing term working class itself simplifies the whole issue and completely discounts the individual's motivation. But, and that is what I perceive as particularly dangerous intellectually, is that it also leads to the image of workers as cogs in the machine. Even if Marx means to help the working class, if you believe workers are functional actors, and I have at least a bit of experience being one, you are going to create a world of functional actors. And if we agree on the statement that storing state is in the natural motivation of the individual, how can creating a world for functional actors be good? And I use good here to reduce the amount of words I have to 
write or say in defining my judgment criteria, but I feel good is good enough at this point here. I think you know what I mean. It's not a critique of collectivist policies that the individual motivation is ignored. That is kind of the whole point of collectivist policies. But I found this mental model to add a new angle to my understanding on the topic that I haven't seen elsewhere. So as, as always, to summarize, the abstraction of a working class um, as something that is an amorphous kind of thing and that has a certain role in society completely takes away this uh, learning journey that obviously more capitalist thinkers uh, would think about is the individualist uh, saying that that people m move up in their knowledge and their experience in their capabilities and and therefore are not a fixed function in a bigger machine but are individuals that keep storing resources to improve their situation and that might be physical resources information or wealth again right Th these two things collide and the same kind of goes for inflationary policies and central banks this is of course a bit less clear of a translation um, or application of the mental model but here it goes Inflation is on the top of many people's minds right now, and I'm very glad the concept is finding more mainstream attention, while I'm obviously not happy to see its direct impact on people's lives. I still hope uh, that the indirect effects, the longer-term effects, will be positive on many individuals, because I think it's a very important concept to understand. So inflation is like quicksand. I made an episode about inflation uh, last year in November or October. The money you earn for your hard work today, right, is worth less in a month's time. And in extreme cases like Venezuela or Argentina, even worth significantly less than in the morning of that same day. So this makes money a hot potato. That is the best explanation I've found so far. So that is something you earn, you have it in your hand, it gets hot and you spend it rapidly before you burn your hands. Inflation harms the individual's ability to store the fruits of their labor. And the laborer is seen as a cog of consumption that has to keep on turning. By whom? Because that's a harsh statement. Obviously, there is different kinds of inflation. The word gets thrown around a lot. There is the kind of inflation that happens naturally, that happens due to, let's say, supply shortages or demand increases that are too sharp and then price goes up. Because inflation just means prices up. Inflation, well, at least the particularly intended type is the one that I find dangerous and that is central bank steered inflation. Before questioning this, I thought inflation was a natural market phenomenon. And what actually is the case that we have institutions that are like semi-democratic, <laughs> that decide for us that 2% inflation is the target and there is an institution that controls the money supply and bond purchases, etc. to keep that rate around 2%. Uh, to uh, stimulate the economy, right? And uh, there's theoretical framings for why that's necessary. Well. There is natural inflation that I said about market disruptions, right? Certain countries don't deliver oil, wood, fertilizers, whatever. And that normally evens itself out uh, due to supply and demand, which doesn't mean that it doesn't cause harm. 
intended inflation, so the central bank steered inflation for monetary policy, is um, defining price stability, which is the primary mandate of the central bank, price stability as a 2% increase in prices. So that, that is um, a bit of a weird one. The ECB, for example, and that is actually from words from a director from the ECB directly, is that the primary mandate for the central bank, this is one now in Europe, but it's the same in the US, is to keep prices stable. Price stability is the buzzword. Now, the interpretation of what stable prices means is then up to the ECB in this case. And what they came up with is that the stable, that the stable prices means 2% increase in prices a year. On average. That means that they literally build an organic decay function to keep, um, to keep the economy going. And again here, this is the same as with the working class uh, lingo, it is an abstraction and it is still quicksand. And if you abstract things away, like keep the economy going, you're discounting the individual. The individual, if uh, he or she has the choice, will avoid quicksand. No, if you if you have a choice, you don't want your wealth to decay by 2% a year. That seems like a pretty obvious statement. So this is by this is inherently a collectivist uh, policy because it basically says, "Hey, we have this artificial concept called money. Let's add a artificial decay function on top of that." And what that does is it, for every individual that has to use that money, it hinders this individual's ability to store wealth from past labor. Right? It doesn't, doesn't hinder the individual's ability to store information from the past. You can still learn from all the jobs you had in the past and apply that in the future. If you have a workshop, you... You can still keep your tools around, even though there's property tax, there's different kinds of taxes, right? But additionally to income tax, you even have this um, additional tax, which is this decay function, this natural decay function, which, which is particularly mean in the sense that uh, you pay income tax when you make money, um, but you pay inflation tax every year after that, forever, right? So without judging the overall economic situation, which is a complex system and I am not qualified to make any judgment of, if, if like, you know, if you don't have inflation, will we have a collapsing economy and so on? I can just observe from the individual first principles perspective that if you have a choice to avoid quicksand, you're going to avoid quicksand. And the mental model of the stateful actor and the motivations that drive the individual clash with both both Marxists' thoughts about the working class as well as the, at least I would have to say, collectivist policy of keeping, in, keeping stable prices means 2% inflation. So before I go too far on a rant here, let's conclude. Uh, we formalized work as a series of inputs. That's all the way back. So then we do operations on these inputs and we have resulting outputs. That is work. Functional actors do work without keeping anything after the work is done. 
which is going against the natural drive of humans. The understanding that humans want to be stateful actors implies that information, physical resources and wealth can be seen as just three types of state the individual wants to store. Obviously, topics like individualism versus collectivism are not simple ones, nor is the struggle that a lot of the working class individuals face. That's real. But my intent is not to uh, you know, propagate a political opinion, but to share my learning process. And in the end, I'm, I'm fascinated by the individual because that is real and that is a human being and to see what drives him or her. That is, I'm fascinated both because I'm an individual and I'd like to understand myself and the individuals around me better, but also because I believe starting at the individual and going up helps to build a coherent worldview. You can actually prove that thing. Right? You can say the individual wants to do this, the next individual wants to do this. Therefore, we should do that, right? potentially, instead of starting at the top. My problem with central bank press releases and Karl Marx is that they always assume a mass of these amorphous non-individuals. They speak of a working class and the rebalancing of wealth as if they are the generals uh, in a very big war game and they have you know, like a troops here on the east and then you have a huge collective of thing and the individual does not matter at all. So I just don't find that very appealing, to be honest, if they're trying to win me for their, for their cause. And I'm surprised by how many very kind people that I know seem not to question these priors too much. Or maybe only in the extremes, right? They say, oh, you know, that's, uh, I don't know, it, in the Cold War, it was very clear that, uh, let's say, straight-up communism is a bad idea and actually uh, might make life for the individual worse. But then in very uh, you know, softened-up uh, forms of that, uh, it's, all, it's all great. Without going back to first principles, and right, I, I don't know. I, I have my, I'm very confused about the, the ability to rationalize very collectivist policies as somebody who's like a kind human being and who wants to be treated well and so on without getting to these principles and saying, well, maybe some of them actually hurt the individual and this abstraction of the greater good is something that is impossible to measure and therefore who are we to, um, to, to be the gods of what is the greater good? Anyway, the, it is a noble one to have this aim to achieve the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. I understand that. Um, when observing the individual and the consequences policies have to achieve that aim, I, I still cannot help but stumble over this contradiction oftentimes. And that is the contradiction between the individual's needs and this somehow arbitrarily stated goal of, well, but the greatest good means we do that, right? But th that's where I want to keep it for today. It's been a long one anyway. I uh, hope I didn't ramble too much. But I find this hugely fascinating. And if you're stuck with me until now, you probably do too. I hope so. So whatever. <laughs> um, what I find interesting about mental, mental models, just as a last point, 
is that that can be applied to a lot of things. That's the quality of a good mental model. The functional versus stateful actor mental framework is not mine, obviously, because uh, it exists in computer science, probably exists in engineering. That's where the cog comes from. I could see it as a explanatory framework for the compensation of work really well, which is pretty close to what we talked about. But let's imagine you're an employee and you want to take a new job and they pay you less than your current job or just a bit more, but you still want to take it. And that might be pretty easily explainable by the amount of, let's say, information retention, meaning learning you can do, right? It seems pretty obvious. I can learn more there that is very valuable for me in the future. So even if I don't get paid super well, this is worthwhile to me. could be the same with resources. I become a cook and um, I don't get paid super well, but I learn a lot and also I can keep my knives afterwards and, and the skills to use those tools and so on. So um, I think that would be an easy application and, and in systems thinking generally, this, these two types of actors reappear over and over again. Um, there's some elements in the in the brain uh, that are very interesting. So if you look at neurons and how they interact, uh, you you have oftentimes a very functional approach. Um, but yeah, that's just maybe something for a future episode or something. I hope you you can maybe take this away if if you're not a computer scientist and you weren't aware of these differentiations. Um, maybe you find elements in life where you can apply this. That would be that would be amazing. Uh, with that, I uh, thank you for listening and have a great day. That was today's episode of The Imposter's Way. If you learned something today or even enjoyed this format, consider coming back next week. I aim to publish these episodes weekly, but will never force myself to publish low-quality work. My aim is to research the topics extensively and continue to improve my writing. Subscribing on podcast apps, sharing this episode with a friend and reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts are the ways you are able to support me in doing so. So thank you so much for listening. I'm very grateful for your attention. If you prefer reading instead, though, all articles are available at theimpostorsway.com. In case you have any feedback or suggestions, you'll also find my contact details there. Until next time, good night and good luck.